Side Hustle Show 208, Pay Less Taxes. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, where aspiring part-time entrepreneurs learn how to turn their side hustle dreams into reality. Because your 9 to 5 may make you a living, but your 5 to 9 makes you alive. And now, your host, Nick Loper. What's up, what's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show. As a business owner, as the CEO of your own life, right, there are three ways and only three ways to improve your personal bottom line, to improve your personal profitability. Number one is to make more, and we've got hundreds of podcast episodes and blog posts on this topic. Number two is to spend less. Now, I love hearing about cool money-saving hacks that let you live well on less, but this topic honestly hasn't been a huge focus because I think there's a limit to how much you can realistically save, whereas I think the earning side is more exciting and more practical and more limitless in that sense. And the third way is to pay less in taxes. And this is an episode on how to do just that. I invited Josh Bowerly from CPAonfire.com onto the program to answer some listener tax questions and some of my own, if I'm honest. Josh and his firm specialize in tax preparation, tax planning, bookkeeping, and general consulting services for online entrepreneurs. 30 minutes with Josh saved me thousands of dollars. So stick around for the next 30 minutes and put some money back in your pocket. Notes, links, and a free PDF highlight reel from this conversation are at sidehustlenation.com slash taxes. My top takeaways from this chat with Josh after the interview. We begin this conversation talking about entity selection and business structuring. Ready? Let's do it. If you're just starting out, you really don't even have to go out and set up any type of formal entity. What a lot of people don't know is that going in for LLC doesn't actually change anything for tax purposes because an LLC isn't even recognized by the IRS. All it is is a legal structure. So in theory, it protects you legally. It separates you in the business. So if, if you're looking for tax savings, don't go rush out and form an LLC. You can literally just hit the ground running as what they call a sole proprietor and save yourself time and money and just not actually register anything. Okay. So an LLC is not going to save you money. It's, a, it's what's called a pass-through entity, right? So you're going to spend money filing for it and, and you know, setting it up, and then it's not going to save you anything. Yeah, exactly. And there's a few other ones that are called pass-through entities that, that could potentially save you. But an LLC, the reason it doesn't, it's what they, the IRS calls a disregarded entity. To them, it doesn't even exist. Okay. <laughs> that's how they really think of your business. You're still a sole proprietor. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So that's one thing. If you do get to a point where it makes sense to register, it would primarily be for liability protection? Yeah, exactly. An LLC stands for Limited Liability Company. So in essence, it sort of acts as a wall between you personally and the business. So that would be, if you're concerned about that, then that could be a reason. The other one thing I will mention is that LLCs are potentially more flexible to get into more beneficial tax arrangements, like an S-Corp, for example, which I'm sure we'll go over, it's easier to get into an S-Corp from an LLC than directly from a sole proprietor. Okay, what do you mean by that? An S-Corp acts almost exactly the same as a sole proprietor and LLC. It's still what you refer to as a pass-through entity, which means that the business itself pays no taxes. Instead, the profits pass through to you, the owner, and you pay all taxes on your personal tax return. Where it could potentially save you money from a sole proprietor and LLC is... Those first two options, sole proprietor and LLC, not only are you going to get hit with ordinary taxes, just like any other income, you're also going to get hit with what they call self-employment taxes, which is an additional 15.3% tax on all of those profits. Okay, so let's just let's just walk through this to, so it looks makes a little bit more sense. Okay. Let's say that you have a business that profits $100,000, meaning after you account for all deductible expenses, 
there was $100,000 profit left. Whether you're a sole proprietor or an LLC, all $100,000 the IRS is going to treat as taxable income. It doesn't matter if you leave all $100,000 in the business, if you take all $100,000 out of the business, or somewhere in between. All you're taxed on is that full $100,000. Okay. And in those first two entities, not only are you going to get hit with your whatever your normal tax rates end up being, you're also going to get hit with that self-employment tax, that 15.3% tax. This is if you have a sole proprietor or a straight-up LLC. Correct. Yep. So that, I mean, doing quick math there, that's an additional $15,000 tax there. Okay. The way the S Corp works is it's the exact same thing. You have those $100,000 profits. They all pass through to you as the owner, regardless of how much you took out. You still get hit with all your ordinary taxes on that $100,000, but you don't get hit with that 15.3% self-employment tax. So it's a pretty, pretty massive tax savings there. Now, the IRS doesn't like losing $15,000 in taxes. So what they do is if you're an S corporation, they make you put yourself on a salary. And on that salary, you're going to get hit with what they call payroll taxes, which is, guess what? 15.3%, same as self-employment taxes. Okay. Okay. So where the savings actually come is on the difference between your profits and your salary. Okay. So going through the same example, you profit $100,000. We decide that a reasonable salary for you is $40,000. On that $60,000 difference between your profits and salary, you save that 15.3% self-employment tax. Okay. Okay. So as long as you can justify, hey, this is a reasonable salary and then take the rest is kind of self-employment tax-free. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the key is a lot of people think, well, I can't just live off that $40,000. You can still take the other 60000 out and it's just still not hit with that self-employment tax. Okay. So it's actually still a pretty cool arrangement. Gotcha. And what kind of threshold above a certain revenue level does it make sense to go through? Because you've got now, you've got to file an 1120S, you got to file at the state level as well for this S-Corp. Got to get set up on payroll, all that other stuff. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's definitely time, money, and and headaches involved in getting it set up. But where we say that it could start to make sense is around $30,000 net income. Definitely when you're getting to the 40 to 50,000 per year range. Yep. Now, some people, a lot lot of older CPAs will will tell you higher than that. They'll say 100, maybe even 200,000 is where it starts to make sense. Yeah. But what's kind of changed is they're thinking of more traditional businesses. So like you own a construction company and it's a lot harder to get away with paying yourself $30,000 a year if you're the the head of your construction company to maximize those savings. But if you own an online business where maybe you're working 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week, you're not putting 60 to 70 hours a week in it, we could very well get away with $30,000 per year salary. So the industry has changed and what's a reasonable salary for you may not be what they're thinking of. So we and a lot of the newer CPAs that are working in this industry, we're starting to see that $30,000 per year in profit is where it starts to make sense. Okay. Interesting. This is a good contrast between the the legal episode. She was like, well, you know, you're going to have around $2,000 in just compliance fees, you know, to file all this stuff. And she's like, it probably doesn't make sense if you're under a hundred grand. So good to hear. Yep. And and the other thing there is another reason this is that level has gone down is those fees have gone way down. So before you'd have to get a payroll company and they might charge you $200 a month, right? Now you can go with someone like Gusto and they're going to charge you 45 bucks a month. So the costs have went down on top of the salary thresholds. Yeah. The way I have set up, so I have this set up LLC with an S corp election and we just run payroll once a year. And so then I can, you know, kind of live off the distributions the rest of the time and then just do it once a year to save on that headache and then try and do the other the other filings as they become due. So, okay, that's helpful to hear. Let's get into some of the questions from the Side Hustle Nation community. So 
Daryl has asked about some of the best deductions for side hustlers and solo business owners, which is incredibly broad. <laughs> but curious to hear, you know, what what are the, some of the things that come to the top of mind there, or something that people miss? Yeah. So the first thing to keep in mind is what eventually will be common sense, maybe not when you first start, but anything that you're directly spending money on to improve your business is easily a tax deduction. So like if you're selling a product, the cost for you to buy that product is a tax deduction. Sure, sure. The cost that you pay for advertising is a tax deduction. And most people get that, but some people it's still, that's still a little confusing when they first start. Right. But anything directly that you're buying for the sole purpose of your business, that's easily a tax deduction. Now, how about something like books or, or online courses? Yeah, so and those for sure are. So you go take a course on how to sell on Amazon, right? That's that's clearly a tax deduction. The, the, clearly, the sole purpose of that is to build an Amazon tax business. I don't know anyone that just says, eh, I'm bored. Let's go watch an Amazon course. <laughs> okay. Right? So that's clearly, if you buy a book that is directly how to build your Amazon business, right? That's clearly a tax deduction. Okay. Where things get a little bit fuzzy and where people miss out on deductions are items that maybe they use personally, but they also use in their business. Okay, so like your cell phone, I'm sure you have a cell phone well before you start a business, but now your business can't function without that cell phone. So guess what? That cell phone is a deduction. Your home internet, if, if you're running an internet-based business, you cannot run that business without your internet. All right, so even though maybe after work hours you're using it personally, that's still a tax deduction. At 100% or do you have to like try and amortize it out? There's mixed opinion. You'll find with tax and legal things, as, as you've already heard with the, the S-Corp stuff, is there's mixed opinions there. For me and for, for a lot of CPAs that I work with, things like cell phone and internet, where it is impossible for your business to function without them, that is a clear 100% tax deduction. Okay. Okay. So if we're talking other things, so here's another big one that people like to do. You go on vacation, right? So you're going to take your family to Florida this year. And you notice that while you're down there, Nick's going to hold a conference for side hustlers, all right? And you can do that for three of the five days you're going to be on vacation. Now you've just turned a portion of your vacation into a tax deduction because you're spending it for business purposes. Now, that's something that clearly the whole vacation and everyone there wasn't there for business purposes. So that's where you'd have to take a partial deduction. So you could write off like my plane ticket, but not my wife's or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So there's things that they distinguish between direct costs and shared costs, right? So like direct costs, like if all your family of five all bought a flight, only your flight's tax deductible. But shared costs, like if you get a hotel room, well, you're going to need a hotel room anyway. So if you only get one room, then that full room's deductible. Okay. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster and 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Shoot, we went to Europe, we went to Prague this fall, and we met up with some folks from like this self-publishing Facebook group that I was in. And it was like, oh, we were hanging out, talking shop, how to sell books, drinking absinthe at this really cool bar. But it was like one day or one night really out of this whole two-week trip. Is that enough to say this was a business meeting? This was like a business travel? <laughs> yeah. So you want to be careful with it. So the first thing is you have to show that you had to be in that place to conduct whatever business you wanted to to run. Right? So I get a lot of people that say, okay, I went on a cruise, but I brought my computer and worked every day I was there. So I'm, I'm writing it off. I'm like, <laughs> no, because you could have worked from home. So that that doesn't work. Okay. If you're going to a, a conference in Florida that the conference is only being held in Florida, well, then yeah, that that works because you had to go to Florida. Okay. Yours is an interesting one because you're meeting up with people there. Now, I mean, some of that's, could you have had that same arrangement at home? Maybe, maybe not. That You'd have to look at that. And the other thing is, you said it's one day out of 14. So even if it's possible, you're talking a minimum portion that you're going to be able to deduct. Okay. All right. Interesting. So anything about the retirement accounts, health accounts, education accounts that are specific to business owners being able to defer income or make some deductions in that way? Health insurance is a big one. There's a lot of confusion. Typically, from a tax perspective, it doesn't matter. So a lot of people will say, oh, I have a business now. I need to get my health insurance under my business plan so I can deduct it. If you're self-employed, you're going to be able to deduct those health insurance premiums either way. There's, you don't need to get it in your business's name to be able to get the deduction. Okay. And chances are, if, if, if you're the only employee in the business, you're, you're probably not going to get any group discounts for doing that because it's not a group. It's just you. Okay. So, oh, I actually have a question about that. So uh, health insurance, like if you do run it through your company and say, hey, I'm a small company, but my employer slash myself provides health insurance, do I qualify for some Obamacare subsidy because like I'm a small company with less than 50 <laughs> employees and now like I'm doing good in, in the eyes of the government? Yeah. So I, I don't believe that that applies if you're the only employee. I think I don't have it offhand, but I think there's a minimum there. Okay. <laughs> when it comes to health insurance, if you're going to try to get it through the business, I definitely recommend talking with a health insurance broker because there are a million, especially with Obamacare, there is a million different rules and loopholes and everything else here. Yeah. But for the most part, it's not going to make a difference whether you get it personally or through the business. You're going to get a tax deduction either way. It's going to be the same amount either way. It's just going to be different on how you go about getting it. Okay. Retirement accounts is where things can get really cool if you own a business. Because so everyone obviously has the option to contribute to their IRA, $5,500 per year, depending on how much it may or may not be tax deductible. But if you own a business, you can institute a 401k or a set plan within the business and potentially contribute up to $53,000 per year to that, which is a direct tax write-off. So if you made $200,000, you put $50,000 of that towards your 
401k, now it's only going to look like you made $150,000, right? And that's where that can get really cool is if you are the only employee in your business. Because if you have other employees, whatever profit sharing you do for yourself, you have to do for them. But if you're the only employee, meaning you're an S-corp owner, you have people working for you, but maybe they're contractors, you're the only one who's on an actual salary, Okay. now you can contribute that $53,000 per year and not have to pay that to anyone else. So there's a ton of options there if you're a business owner when it comes to retirement accounts. And honestly, that that's probably my favorite. Outside of getting someone set up in an S-corp, my favorite tax strategy is opening up a retirement plan within the business. Interesting. So the 53K is a total between the individual payroll contribution and company profit sharing company match? Yeah. So there's two portions of it. There's the employee side. So the thing to keep in mind, like if you're an S-corp owner, you're, you're both an employee and an owner of the business. Okay. So up to, I think it's $18,000 per year, you contribute on the employee side. Then you can do an additional 25% of your salary up to a total combined of $53,000. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So one thing to keep in mind there to, to maximize that, you have to obviously up your salary, which takes away some of the savings from the S-Corp, but you're also reducing your taxable income by the amount you put into that 401k. So it's, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of strategy involved. So definitely talk to someone if, if you're thinking of doing it. But if you have the cash flow to do something like that, it's, it's one of the best tax savings out there. Yeah, that's the advantage, hopefully, of, of running a side hustle. It's like, well, if I don't need this cash to pay the bills today, well, maybe I don't want to pay tax on it today. I want to defer this as much as I can. Exactly. Okay, Alex asks, how much should I set aside for estimated taxes? Do you have any rules of thumb for sending those quarterly checks in? Yeah, so it depends on a few things. Number one, which state you're in, because being in California is a whole lot different than being in Texas, because there's the whole state tax thing. Uh, another is how much you're actually making. If you're under 100000 and you're in a low-tax or no-tax state, so basically anywhere except New York or California, you're probably safe with putting somewhere between 20 and 25% of your net income in savings. If you're in California or you're making a higher end of income, if you're starting to get over the 150000 net income range, I'd probably go with closer to 25 to 35%. With the more you're making, obviously, the higher that percentage. This is something that's super depressing for <laughs> self-employed people because it's like, hey, I made a thousand bucks last month. And then it's like, I made 750 last month after I paid <laughs> Uncle Sam. Yep. Go grab your nearest friend or family member that has a normal job and ask them to see their last pay stub and, and look at how much they're putting towards taxes. You're, you're still coming out ahead. Yeah. It's painful to proactively write that check. but okay. It is. Yeah. It, it feels different. as You can directly feel the money coming out of you when you're, when you're just yeah, moving it yeah. <laughs> yourself as opposed to when your employer is just taking it out of your check. Absolutely. Okay. Next question. Aaron asks, if my business is pre-revenue, do I need to file a return? And whether that's an S-corp return or, or even like a Schedule C. Yep. So it, that actually makes a difference. If you are just a sole proprietor or an LLC or a partnership, you probably don't have to file a return if you're not generating revenue. Okay. Now, what if you have expenses on that? Like if you want to write off... Yep, that's that's good. Okay. Yep, that's the next step. So if, if you're a corporation and you didn't have any income, then if you had any activity, you still have to file either way. Now, what you said is true. If, if you have expenses, let's say that you had $3,000 to get this thing up and running, but you yeah. didn't start generating revenue yet, that $3,000 can be reported as a loss on your tax return, and that can be used to reduce any other income you have. So if you still have a day job where you're making $50,000 a year and you spent $3,000 to get this business up and running, now if you report that, it's going to look like you made $47,000 instead of $50,000. So there's almost certainly an advantage to doing it. One other thing to keep in mind there, when it comes to what they call startup expenses, which are before your business is actually in revenue collection stage, then you're limited to $5,000 to write off. 
initially. If you go over that $5,000, the remaining amount has to be what they call amortized, which is just a fancy word for spreading out over 15 years. So if you're in like a high dollar industry, which probably a lot isn't going to be a lot of your audience, but let's just say that you spent $20,000 this year to get this up and running, still in startup phase, you can immediately write off that first $5,000. The remaining $15,000 has to be spread out over 15 years, so you get $1,000 per year. Okay. Interesting. So yeah, so if you have startup costs and your pre-revenue, absolutely make sure to file that because that can reduce your tax bill in the near term. So that's very good to know. Marco asks, can my business buy a car and deduct it? This is, this is a great time. Right around the end of the year, people are always yep. asking, what can I spend money on? Yeah. And a car is one of the most commonly asked questions. And like pretty much everything we're going to say here is it depends. <laughs> okay. Well, number one, if it's a car that you're using solely for your business, absolutely. Yes. For most people, that's not going to be the case. A car is a lot different than things like cell phone and internet, where even if you're using it personally, you can still deduct it. A car, they're pretty strict on, is this a business car? Is this a personal car? Is it both? My suggestion is, unless it's something that you're buying solely for the use of your business, or at least like 90 to 95% for business purposes, then get it in your personal name and have your business reimburse you for the specific business use of that. First of all, you're not, you're not going to get a full deduction for, if you go buy a $50,000 car, you're not going to get a $50,000 tax deduction. You have to go back to depreciating it like we talked about. So I can't go out and buy like an Escalade and just like slap the Side Hustle Nation <laughs> logo on the back of it? That's, that's the most common question. I had, use it personally, but I'm going to put my logo on the car. So I'm Yeah, gonna now it's like every time I drive it, it's advertising. Right. Yeah. No, the IRS does not see it that way. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it, keep it simple. If, if you're not going to use it exclusively for business and that's most people aren't, then buy it personally and track the business mileage and have your business reimburse you and then you'll get the expense. Okay. Fair enough. So then, and that's whatever, 54 cents a mile for this year. And yeah, I think what is it? It was 57 last year. I think it's 57 and a half this year, somewhere in that range. Okay. Now, how about other equipment that you might So I'm considering upgrading my home office setup with a bigger monitor or a new laptop or something like that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, computers. I mean, these are tools that you need to run. your Like you absolutely can't live without them in your business. So full deduction, it's possible. <laughs> We're going to get into real technical talk here with this. But so the general default is that you have to depreciate them, which again, just means spreading it out. Like computers are typically spread out over five years. So if you okay. pay $5,000, you get 1000 per year. But there's something that they call Section 179, which allows us to take it all in that first year, assuming you had profits of at least that much. So in other words, it can't cause you to have a loss in your business. So again, this is something you want to talk directly to your tax preparer with, but you're probably going to be able to deduct it in the first year, even though it's typically depreciated. Okay. Now going back to the car thing, I swear I've read something where like every business is allowed to have one car like even i don't know because i work like entirely online and I, can, I use the car to drive to sometimes conferences sometimes like meetups and stuff like that so there are there is business mileage that i put on it but i swear i heard something that was like hey every business is entitled one car <laughs> yeah i mean every business you, you can any business can deduct a car in it it just depends on how the deduction works and, and what you're doing with it so first of all, you can't just take it, you can't just section 179 it typically and, and take the full <laughs> amount like you do with a computer. Okay. So you can't buy a $50,000 car and get a $50,000 write-off. You're probably going to spread it over multiple years. And there's always a test there of, is it being used the majority of the time for business as opposed to personal? Okay. So when I had a painting company like, and I bought a truck for that, that would be pretty reasonable. Like, look, I need this to carry around ladders and sprayers and pressure washers and all this stuff. 
Exactly. Yeah. So if your business requires vehicles, specific vehicles for that, like a truck or your construction, you go buy a dump truck. Obviously, you're not going to drive your dump truck to dinner tonight. So okay. how about if you're an Uber driver? Yeah. Uber driving can, do, can create a whole entire new thing. And actually, I haven't seen anything released on how they would handle that. I mean, because you obviously your car is your business. So I would I would say you have significantly more flexibility on, on what can and can't be deducted there. The thing to remember with car, though, is it's always going to be limited on how much you can take in that first year. So you're almost never going to be able to go in there and just deduct the full cost of your car. Okay. This is going to have to be depreciated because it's still exactly. worth something after the first year. Okay. Yep. All right. Fair enough. We beat the car thing to death. I love it. <laughs> Lisa asks, what kind of records do I need to keep? What kind of receipts do I need to keep? Like, you know, how do I log all this stuff? Yeah. So, you know how in real estate, they always say there's three rules, location, location, location. With the IRS, there's also three rules, documentation, documentation, documentation. All right. So the more documentation you can provide, the better. The nice thing is in, in our age now, pretty much everything can be traced back to bank transaction or your credit card transaction. So they're not as adamant of keeping receipts. But yeah. if you can, I would at least keep what people always refer to as a shoebox full of receipts for the simple fact that if the IRS does ever get really nosy and, and want to know where you spent that money, you can at least hand them a box and say, well, have at it, dig through it. Okay. Your tax preparer is probably not going to need that. If you come to someone like me, all we're going to need to see is a list of your expenses and then how much income you brought in. The big thing you want to be documenting and tracking is where your money's going. Because you can't just give your CPA number and say, here's, I made 150, I spent 100,000, so my net was 50. When it comes to expenses, they're going to need to know what it was spent on, right? So you got to say, okay, 10,000 was spent on advertising and 15,000 was spent on travel, whatever it is. You, gotta, you have to have that categorized. Okay. But when it comes to documenting, I mean, just if for me, I would just keep a, a boxy that you keep all receipts you get into. But for the most part, they're going to be able to trace it back to a digital receipt of that somehow. Yeah, I'm horrible at that. I like shred all the receipts almost as soon as I get them just because it's like, well, it'll show up in my credit card statement. Exactly. Yeah. And that's even more true if you're doing what's supposed to and separating your business and personal finances. So I guess that I'd say that's the biggest key here. Okay, if you have okay. a separate bank account and a separate credit card for your business and you're not commingling your, your business and personal finances, it's very easy to just for the IRS to say, oh, you listed $100 here. What was that? You go back on your credit card receipt and you can find what it was. Now, okay. if you're mixing business and personal, they're going to say, well, okay, prove to us that wasn't one of the personal transactions here. Yeah, fair enough. Now, the, the receipts that I was very better at keeping were the Amazon FBA like clearance arbitrage shopping receipts where it's like, okay, I reasoned that spending this money at Walmart and, and Home Depot and Toys R Us and, you know, Babies R Us and stuff, like that's going to look a little weird. You just kind of claim that as a business expense. So I did keep all of those and make sure to file those. That's a great strategy. I mean, use some common sense here. If, if you're buying something that you think could very easily cross the line of whether the IRS thinks it's business or personal. Keep a receipt, jot a quick note on it, what happened, what what went on there, and then you're just covered just in case. Okay. We're knocking these out. We're doing good. So we're focusing on United States law. You know anything about the EU value added tax on digital products? This is something that's come up a handful of times in the group. <laughs> yeah, this is the VAT tax is a little bit ridiculous. I'm not an expert. We're, we're strictly US taxes, so I can't give you all that much information here. I'll just say that if you're selling anything in Europe or outside of the US, you need to look into this. You need to, to find someone that's an expert in this because you could be very well be liable for it. Interesting. So if you're an online course creator, an ebook seller, and somebody buys your product, buys your course from the EU country, you might have to charge them extra? 
Potentially. And I'll say that most 99% of the U.S. people I talk to are not even worried about it. Yeah. What jurisdiction do they have? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So I wouldn't get too concerned. But I mean, if you're someone that has a significant amount of sales over there, it's it's worth looking into and just making sure there's nothing you have to do. Obviously, if you live there, then it's you have to. <laughs> you're not going to get around it. Find an expert on that tax and, and, and get a consult on that. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Have you dealt with any Amazon sellers on like state specific sales taxes? This is another oh, question man. that's come up quite a few times. Sales tax. So Amazon FBA sales and sales tax are the biggest nightmare there is when it comes to taxes, at least until you <laughs> get a grasp on it and, and know what's going on. Okay. There's this fancy little word in, in sales tax called nexus, which is means that you have a physical presence there. For most people, that's no big deal. All that means is where your business is located. So I have a physical presence. I have nexus in California. Yeah, exactly. Because you're in California, you're running your business from California. But there's one key little thing in there that creates nexus of where you store your inventory. And if you're on Amazon FBA, you probably know that Amazon keeps your inventory in up to 14 different states. So now you have nexus in up to 14 different states. And what the rules technically say is, now that you have that inventory in those 14 or potentially 15 states, if, if your home state's not already one of those, yeah. you now have to collect and pay sales tax on any sales within those states. And they don't do it on, they don't just do that, calculate that on your behalf? Nope. Unfortunately, it, <laughs> I've actually written Amazon about this and it's like, you guys are killing people with this. Like you need to come up with a solution here. Yeah. So I'll tell you a few things here. Number one, most people are not following that. What they're doing is just collecting and paying within their home state. I'm not going to advise you to do that because this is another one where there's a lot of differing opinions, but the way most people read the rules is that you are supposed to do it in all 14 of those states. Wow. But what most people are doing, start, at least starting out especially, they're just collecting and paying in their home state. If you're not already doing that, that's your first step. You've got to collect and pay in your home state. Based on the orders that come in from customers that are also in your home state. Yeah, exactly. So the way it works is you're in California. You know that creates nexus in California. So any sales to someone that's also located in California, you would collect sales tax and then pay that to the state of California. Okay. But I feel like Amazon, like every time I order from Amazon, they're already collecting that tax. Yeah, they're collecting it on your behalf. You have to go in there and tell Amazon which states to collect it for. And then you have to, you're responsible for being the one to pay that to the state. Oh, geez. In one sense, Amazon automates it by collecting it for you, but that's all they'll do for you. So if, if you're about to get out of the Amazon business completely because of what we just said here, it's, <laughs> it's not that bad. It's scary to think about. Go to TaxJar, TaxJar.com. They're the best people in the industry in sales tax. They can sync directly up with your Amazon account. They can tell you what states you have inventory in, where your sales are, and then help you get registered in those states, help you collect the sales tax in those states, and help you pay out the sales tax in those states. Okay, taxjar.com. That's my recommendation. Yeah, interesting that they're... I fought different Nexus battles with Amazon over the years and, and other retailers, and you know, trying, states are trying to get their fair share, and so it only makes sense, but it's weird that they're kind of like pushing that off to all these little sellers when it's like, they have the technology. They're already doing this in whatever 14 states they operate and have distribution centers and all this stuff. So it didn't seem like it would be too much difficult to add a, a few more zeros to those checks that they're sending in. 
it would completely solve this issue if Amazon would just take it out of the seller's hands and say, we, we got it. We'll take care of sales tax. But yeah. I guess they, you can't really tell Amazon, sorry, I'm going to go sell on another platform. So they have all the power. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, no, I know. So some people have asked that question and I was like, that wasn't even on my radar when I started selling. So I was like, I know nothing about it. And then I'm like, I'm kind of afraid to go down that rabbit hole. Like, what am I liable for? But Well, and here's the problem with it. The, the states are still stuck in like 1990. Like they, they don't understand that this whole internet and, and digital age works. So it's, they've made it hard to get registered with them. They've made it hard to easily pay with them. If they're going to make you do this stuff, they should have a very easy system to register and pay the sales tax. And unfortunately, as of now, that's not the way it works. Yeah, fair enough. Well, this is this has been fascinating stuff, Josh. Any other creative yet legal accounting wins or, or strategies we should be aware of, maybe from your client role or something else you've you've seen in the in the trenches? Yeah, I guess a big thing this time of year is we'll advise people that most of you are going to be on what they call a cash basis taxpayer. What that means is your income is recognized as taxable income when you receive it, and your expenses are recognized as deductible expenses when you pay it. So if if someone pays you two months before you actually do the work, it's still considered taxable income when you receive it. What this means is if you have some big expenses coming in January and you pay them on December 20th, you get that tax deduction for this year. So if you're looking and you want to reduce that tax bill for this year, one of the big things we always recommend is take a look at your, especially January, big expenses that are coming up and try to pay as many of them as you can before the end of the year so that you can get that tax deduction this year. Some people try to say, okay, well, maybe next year I might be in a higher tax bracket, so I want to save it. My recommendation is always take the tax deduction when you know it's there. One other thing I would say, since we've been talking Amazon and e-commerce, you need to understand, especially if you're new to this, your inventory that you purchase is not a tax deduction until you sell it. So a lot of people hear that, go buy a bunch of expenses this year so you can get the tax deduction. And they'll go rush out and buy $50,000 worth of inventory at the end of the year. And then I have to give them the bad news that, oh yeah, you spent $50,000 in inventory, but you only sold 5000 of it, so you only get a $5,000 deduction. Interesting. I did not know that. Okay. That expense works completely different than every other expense. Inventory is not a tax deduction until you actually sell the inventory. Interesting. Okay. Um, I might have messed something up on that. Well, I didn't have very much inventory to begin with. Yeah. A lot of people mess it up, especially their first few years doing it, especially if they're doing their own taxes. Okay. Yeah. As I'm doing, so like around this time of year, I'm looking for what kind of subscriptions can I prepay for, or can I save a little money by going on the annual plan instead of monthly, like lead pages, for example, that are renew at the end of the year. Can you prepay hosting? Like if you want to pull forward some of these expenses in order to have that deduction. So yeah, and that's, that's kind of a double savings, right? Because you pay lead pages on an annual basis instead of monthly and you get the tax deduction immediately. Plus, they're going to give you a little bit of a discount for paying annually. Right, right, right. Awesome stuff. Josh, you can find him at cpaonfire.com. You'll find lots of good information over there. Plus, if you want to dive deeper into anything that we talked about, he is available for that, cpaonfire.com. Josh, let's uh, wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Doesn't have to be tax related. Could be related to how you built your own business or anything else on your mind. I guess I, if I had to say the biggest lesson I've learned from working with specifically online businesses and a lot of successful ones is build your audience. And once you build your audience, everyone focuses on ways to make money right away. Focus on building your audience. If you can build an audience, your, your ways of making revenue off that audience are endless. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much. And we'll catch up with you soon. All right. Thank you. All right. My top takeaways from this call with Mr. CPA on fire himself, Josh. 
Number one, don't sweat the entity question until you're making at least 30 grand a year from your business. And the caveat there is if you have a low liability business, otherwise it might make sense to file for an LLC for liability protection. Takeaway number two, track your expenses like a hawk. Even if you're pre-revenue, the money you're spending on hosting, on domain registration, on software, on education, that's all deductible. Of course, keep it as lean as you can, but make sure to write off what you do spend. Each dollar that you do reduces your taxable income. Takeaway number three, when in doubt, ask an expert. Professional help should pay for itself, plus you're going to have peace of mind knowing you're playing by the rules and being as smart about this stuff as you can. Be sure to stop by SideHustleNation.com slash taxes to download the free PDF highlight reel with all of Josh's top tips from this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show, where I catch up with one of the most popular guests of all time. Can you say onion goggles? Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and hustle on. Thanks for listening to The Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com.